Good afternoon, everybody. Actually, it's good morning in Arizona, and it's good evening in the UK. Thank you very much for joining us. This is really such a pleasure. I've been an admirer of Philippa Gregory's amazing work for years. And to introduce her, I'm going to do it sort of by time zone. I mean, sorry, by centuries. Time zones are a huge problem with Zoom. Anyway, um, she has written Plantagenet and Tudor series, including The War of the Cousins. That's 1430 to roughly 1568. The Order of Darkness, 1460 to 1461. The Tradescant series, which I truly love, 1603 to 1638. Currently, the Fairmile series, which is what we're going to be talking about, Dawnlands, book three, from 1648 to 1685, and then she leapt ahead into the 18th century with the White Acre Trilogy, 1772 to 1805. And she's written modern novels and um, a work of history and other historical novels. And although she began publishing in 1987, you may know her work best from the Boleyn Girls, which has been the other Boleyn Girl, which has been made into films this year. Um, she was awarded a CBE. So for those of us in America, Philippa, who don't know what that is, could you explain it? Um, there are various orders of merit uh, awarded by the Queen to uh, people who she uh, particularly likes. It's not that personal. Uh, they're nominated by their communities or by their uh, colleagues, and uh, they run up to dames and knights. So you get knighted at the very top of it. And the one below that is commander of the British Empire, which is what she was gracious enough to award me. How wonderful for you that you you received it from her while she was still doing it. Well, uh, in this in the last year, yeah, yeah it it makes it extra special. Actually, yes, it does. Of course, it does. Gareth Russell, um, who we have not met before, is um, I'm sorry, I have to switch gears here. Um, is from Northern Ireland. He published his first work of nonfiction in 2014 and 2019. His account of the Titanic disaster. You're from Belfast, right? Where they actually built yeah, it. Yeah, I'm actually two streets it. over from where they That's designed That's right. right. I'm from yeah. <laughs> was named a book of the year by the Times and a best history book of 2019 by the Daily Telegraph. And 2022, his biography of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, was published. He's the playwright and the author of two novels, but I think he probably best intersects with Philippa's work with his An Illustrated History of the Tudors published in 2014. So Don Lance, I think, <clears throat> which is the third in the Fairmile series, has a gorgeous cover, which probably is getting too much reflection. And um, Philippa was kind enough to sign book plates for us. So um, if you order your copies, we still have some and we can get more, we have signed book plates. So welcome both of you. I was gonna tell, <clears throat> excuse me, Philippa briefly, on my first foray to England on my own, I rented a car at Gatwick Airport and totally virgin to riding, driving on the left side of the road or in fact, driving on English roads at all. I left Gatwick Airport for Eastburn where I was going to stay at a, at a wonderful place. And my, my first place of refuge where I could turn off and kind of breathe, and maybe practice parking or something was Heaver Castle. It was right on the road there. And I've, you know, I've retained this real affinity for Heber Castle and the Boleyn family, because while I was there, I thought I might as well totally immerse myself in whatever Heber Castle had to offer. But um, I found it a place of real succor, um, which maybe is not what most people think of the Boleyn family or Heber Castle as, but it was for me. Anyway, um, Gareth is going to be questioning Philippa and after a while, um, Patrick will come back with your questions or comments, which you can enter into the comments field and um, he'll reappear. So Gareth, over to you. 
Thank you so much for that introduction. And it's lovely to, feeling to say meet always still feels strange on Zoom, Um, but it is lovely to meet you. And the book is absolutely fascinating. I wanted to talk a little bit about the period that you picked, um, Philippa, because it's, so for people who haven't um, had a chance to pick it up yet, it covers actually quite a condensed period of our country's history, 1685 to 1689. And as we said, I'm speaking from Belfast tonight, and in this part of the world, the ghosts of that decade are still very uh, potent. It probably, I mean, there are marches in the road outside every July commemorating one of your one of your uh, main figures in, in William of Orange. What do you think it attracted you to the 1680s? Because I would, I don't think I'm sort of speaking out of school here to say that it is a period that we would know is very, very important in our country's history, but it's certainly not one that gets a lot of attention, I think, before Dawnlands. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think I think any civil war uh, is of enormous interest if you're writing a family history at all, because mm-hmm. families are divided as the nation is divided. Uh, and so I started my, this series, the Fairmile series, with a book called Tidelands, which was set in 1640. Uh, and my intention was that it would be a common family, a working family, and that we would trace through uh, a, a lot of books, a number of books, uh, from the 1640 to their rise, uh, which comes, uh, as did so many other families, with the uh, British Empire and colonialism, the expansion of trade. Um, and then I've, then I found, uh, because I'm a historian, because I can't resist, I can't stop myself, really, uh, that I had set this character in 1640 and over the Solent in the Isle of Wight at the time was Charles I imprisoned, fighting for his life, trying to avoid execution. And into her life, therefore, came a royalist spy. And the whole story developed and became very, very clear to me, only really now, that in a time where the monarchy is a tyranny, if you want to tell a family history, you always end up being involved in the history of the royal family as well, because what they do determines everybody's lives. So this book, I mean, I agree with you, James II isn't well known and his second Mm -hmm. wife, Mary of Medina, even less. But actually their decision to push for Roman Catholicism in a country which is absolutely determinedly Protestant brings the end of the Stuart line, brings two rebellions in this book, not just one, which are fundamentally the the refighting of the English Civil War Mm -hmm. with a different Stuart and a different government. Well, that's, it's interesting. That's actually sort of not that we didn't plan this. That's like a perfect segue into my next question, which is one of the one of the things I think that this series does that, again, sort of not to hearken too much on the Northern Irish thing, but I just, it really struck me because it's perfectly done in these books is that you deal with the inheritance of generational trauma and you deal with the inheritance of prejudice and that these very, very intense questions that Britain grappled with about monarchy and religion echo down the generations for this family. Was that something, I mean, you're saying obviously the idea develops, you know, the story develops as you write it. Was that something you were interested in writing as you started this, this series? It's it's really interesting you should say that, and it's really a great compliment. And I hope that it's true also for the American readers, because we have a theme throughout this, the two books of the series of uh, uh, one of the English characters comes to America and is involved in the first American war against 
the indigenous people called King Philip's War, which, although also not very well known, is mm. the most deadly, is the most fatal for people in uh, American history. So, yes, I mean, I think any family, any serious family saga is going to be about generational trauma because one of the things that identifies a family is not just being born of each other but the inheritance you carry so I wasn't conscious of that but now you said I absolutely see that's what I was doing and and that's that's really what the story is about so there's sort of now you now thank you for you saying it you always know what you're writing when someone else reads it Every time. It's so powerful. <laughs> it's extraordinary. So, like, what I thought I was doing is I thought I was writing a story of a family who goes from poverty locally into global and wealth over generations, slowly, slowly, with each expansion being explained by the reality, the political and the economic reality of their time. But also, you're absolutely right, what each generation does is understands and reinterprets the things that have gone wrong before in a way which either resolves it for them or intensifies it for them as trauma does. Well, I think that that is certainly the, the the question of resolution versus reviving it. That is something that does seem to really percolate in Dawnlands. And uh, there's a brilliant, I mean, it's, there's a quote from quite early on in the book, but you say really, so 1685 when the story begins, King Charles II has died. Um, and the, the, stark choice not just that your characters face but the country faces to crown the unpopular roman catholic brother instead of the adored ba protestant bastard son and really what what seems to be happening here is an eternal political question which is what sacrifices morally do you make or are you comfortable with making in order to create a better society and i think that was something that really because on the one hand you could see absolutely james is supposed to be james ii is supposed to be the next king but he's manifestly unsuited for it and, and extremely unpopular and so i think it was i mean it just was such an interesting reflection on the cost i suppose that we're willing to pay for our political beliefs was that something that you found maybe one or two characters were more involved with or less so i think uh, i mean some of them of course are, yeah. are fictional characters and are there to be uh, as well as moving the story along i mean simply entertaining the mm. character of livia the italian widow who bursts in upon the scene and you know is absolutely cruella de vil and maleficent you know yeah. rolling, into, rolling into one sexy widow <laughs> she's just a delight to write and i think yeah. everybody loves to read livia yeah um, she was my favorite to read about i loved uh, she re she really was yeah. delicious but equally uh, she couldn't operate in the way that she operates if there wasn't, in a sense, a terrain of uncertainty, which mm. comes about from this very question you put, which is, how do you want the country to be? And uh, at its simplest, uh, people answer it in terms of Protestant or Roman Catholic or not democratic, but certainly a constitutional monarchy, a monarchy of limited powers. And then in addition to that, who do you like? You know, people find James II intensely dislikable and yeah. they find James Duke of Monmouth intensely likable interestingly when William of Orange comes to the throne as a constitutional monarch and uh, as Protestant everybody goes yeah we'll have him but he's really horrible so yeah I think, yeah he... so there's that that problem which I I think particularly my American readers in their feedback to me sometimes struggle with which is how is it that you have a leader who isn't the one people like the best? 
because mm. it's a monarchy, it's not a democracy. And one of the tasks of monarchy in this book and in today is how to be liked, how to yeah. how to get people to feel you deserve the position you occupy. Which is interesting because I think it's it's absolutely true. We always forget that William III was sort of seen as a cocktail of boring and unlikable, all rolled into one. But he was the for Protestants the best of the, or they felt he was the best solution. I think he was the only solution to yeah. the difficulty of having uh, another Stuart clearly pushing Roman Catholicism and clearly verging on tyranny. And what we'd seen with the Monmouth Rebellion was that the power of monarchy was enough to turn out the armies. I think if James, Duke of Monmouth, had escaped and returned, he might have won the second time. I, but I think you're probably was, right. As yeah. it was, they had a sort of a, a halfway house in that William of Orange was married to James Stuart's daughter, Mary. So you had this sort of fig leaf of inheritance, mm. which is one of the reasons, I think, why we don't know much about the last Stuart, about the end of the Stuarts, because the Hanoverians who come in after Mary, who are even less related, and who then lead on ultimate to the Saxe-Coburg-Gothas, who are rename themselves as Windsor. The desire for monarchy is to conceal these massive breaks and, mm -hmm. and complete changes in for the benefit of, of saying it's hereditary, we've always been here. And you know, during the funeral of the late Queen, there was a lot of discussion about how the throne went back to the Tudors. And you go, really not. You know, yeah. don't be impolite, but really not. No, it's a skimming stone. It's it's interesting because sometimes you have to say, look, the inheritance is the fig leaf, but the real body is what's convenient to the country and the dynasty. That you're absolutely right. It's not. I think someone asked me what I tried. I did the maths once. How many times it's gone father to son, and it's the minority. It's it's really the minority how it's how it's transferred. Um, one of the things I love the most about the book, and I think people are really going to enjoy, is to me it felt like the best kind of an adventure because there's such a panorama of settings. You have obviously the stately home in Yorkshire, you have a, a tumultuous London, but we also get to see New England and Barbados in the 1680s. Can you talk a little bit about your research and what you enjoyed writing about um, 17th century Boston and Barbados? Well, I knew from the very beginning that this was a series which was going to go internationally because it was going to follow the prosperity of Britain and the British Empire. Um, so I was already, I had already had a book, Dark Tides is set very much in New England and in the uh, colonial border, borders, really the expanding borders of uh, New England uh, at a place called Hadley, where we met for the first time the Poconocock people and I went to New England and uh, met with the Pocanacot people and got permission from them to tell their story. And they were very, very generous with their time and their history with me. So I had a real sense of what that culture, the pre-colonial culture was like, and then a real sense of the devastation of the war, which meant that when I came to write the character who comes from New England into England in this book, I had a real sense of her family and her past as I had a sense of the English past. Uh, she gets involved in the uh, Monmouth Rebellion and uh, most of the people involved in the Monmouth Rebellion were uh, transported in servitude to Barbados, interestingly enough, with a lot of Irish, of course, mm, who yeah. are always rebels and always uh, 
in a sense, the white slaves of the British Empire also. So uh, she gets transported to Barbados and I, I, you know, you'll be proud of me as a fellow author that I made the enormous sacrifices of going to Barbados. Oh. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, <laughs> And I had a simply wonderful time there, but also uh, just the, the there's nothing like going to a place when you need to write about it. So the mm. everything from the sky and the colour of the earth and, uh, you know, the, the history of the sugar plantations, it's incredibly fruitful. And uh, I think added a dimension to the novel, which, which was exactly where I've been heading all the way along, which is that this is going to be a series which takes in the expansion of Britain overseas and then its subsequent shrinking. Well, it's inter- Well, that's particularly interesting because I think from having read some of your earlier novels, but that's more than the earlier the medieval setting, you, you do sometimes forget how small the world was in comparison to the medieval mindset. And then it you feel it, the, it just seems to be getting bigger all the time. And I thought it was it, just to be going from Yorkshire to Barbados was, was a real joy in the book. And we talked about her briefly, but Livia is was one of my questions because she's she is a perfect mixture of glamour and terror, I think, sort of woven into one very morally nebulous character. I know your PhD is in 18th century literature, and I sort of felt with Livia, we were getting back to, I mean, it's a bit more 17th century, but the best kind of restoration anti-heroine, she's loathsome, but you can't really take your eyes off her when she's on the page. You've said she was a joy to write. What was it about um, Livia that you enjoyed writing beyond the obvious? And were there any real life inspirations for her or was it, it purely fictional? You know, I think she's probably a literary trope. You know, I don't think I can even take credit for her. Uh, you say, I hadn't thought of the 17th century villainous women. She's, of course, she's also liaison d'orgereur. Yeah, she's, absolutely. She's um, uh, Madame Merle. Uh, she's uh, a little bit later on. She's uh, the she's Rebecca in Daphne du Maurier's mm. Rebecca. She yes, is everything yeah. that the respectable English reader fears under doors simultaneously you know, <laughs> she's, she's she's foreign you know she's very foreign uh she's very glamorous she's very sexy uh she manages her sexuality in the way that english literary heroines do not um i think she's i think she's really i think i'm a very bad feminist to write her you know i'm <laughs> I'm positively ashamed of myself for succumbing <laughs> to the temptation to write a woman who is sexually active and wicked and, you know, virtually um, incredibly mercenary and absolutely selfish. But of course, she is the, you know, she is the very thing that English men, I think, fear women are and English women long that they could be. But believe mm. it is, you know, out with their entire repertoire. So she's just yeah. great to imagine that's so i hadn't thought about rebecca from daphne du maurier there is that yeah, kind of yeah that. absolutely literally the italian widow who comes in married to your brother yeah. and you don't know if he's she's killed him or not <laughs> <laughs> as you know as they do these italian women <laughs> that's so that's so good because i because i thought i mean she sort of reminded me a bit of um the mancini sisters who were this sort of like rambunctious tribe of socialites in Louis the 14th court who if there was any whiff of a scandal you could be sure one of those sisters was was, was nearby 
to move to the other Italian character in it, uh, Mary Beatrice, the Mary of Medina, who was James II's wife, is probably, I think, our least known queen consort, despite the fact that she was our last Catholic queen. And I, th- I find she almost is in some ways the anti-Livia, I think, because she, while she is Italian, she's someone of very intense political and religious beliefs, intensely modest. What kind of research did you do before um, writing Mary Beatrice? And what made you want to make her, or give her probably, the, I think, for the first time in fiction, make her a central character? There's only two biographies about her. Mm. And, you know, one of them is is very much worse than the other. Um, which is pretty, I mean, they're very old biographers as well. It's not that anybody's going to be knocking on my door. Sure, um, sure. <laughs> safe yes. enough. Um, but, but she isn't a much regarded. I think one of the reasons she's not much regarded is because there is a real longing to, in a sense, get the Stuarts off the, the throne and forget them. And of mm. course, she went to France with her husband, the king, and they lived in France. I mean, I've just put, I've just gone Wallace Simpson for Livia also. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Exactly. Anyway, yes. so Mary Medina goes oh, to France <laughs> and, and, and lives lives in France with the king and raises the Prince of Wales. I mean, undeniably, he is the legitimate son of the King of England. He is the Prince of Wales. And he's the one who keeps coming back and having these doomed attempts at retaking England. Sometimes I think at least on one occasion coming in from Ireland. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And the, and the Stuarts remain the princes over the water, uh, absolutely adored, but never actually supported mm-hmm. for oh, yeah. literally centuries. You know, it becomes a sort of a dream of, you know, it would all be better if we could get the Stuarts back, but we never do. Right, but could so, I just for just a moment and, and say, because it occurred to me when I was writing this up, I did sort of a riff on, see, I, I think Charles II failed in his primary duty as a monarch, which was to produce an heir. And I've always wondered why he didn't divorce Catherine of Braganza, who was clearly you know, because he was Catholic and because she was Catholic, I think. But the warming pan baby, it seemed to me, because we're in the middle of this ghastly election, was a classic of misinformation. You know, I mean, it was so contemporary to read about, you know, that and and that was one of the things that pushed the glorious revolution and, you know, got them off the throne was the question of whether this baby, as I understand it, she was too modest to give birth in public or refused. And no, do you know that's still more fake news? It's extraordinary extraordinary how powerful the legend about the warming pan baby was. Uh, She gave birth in the royal bedchamber in the presence of, and these are just some of the names I'm going to list for you, most of the Privy Council, uh, not the Archbishop of Canterbury because he was imprisoned in the tower by her husband for being head of the Church of England and not Roman Catholic, sundry ladies-in-waiting, three or four ladies-in-waiting, couple of midwives, couple of attending doctors, her husband who held her hand at the head of the bed throughout, and her mother-in-law. And everybody stood around and waited for this baby to come. They folded the bedclothes up to her knees so that everybody could see the baby come out. And the baby came out, uh, as they do. (laughs) It's all going (laughs) on. And then subsequently, uh, the rabid vitriolic Protestant gossip, including her stepdaughter, Princess Anne, which is just Mm. 
such a low blow. Uh, it's horrific. Really awful. It really is. Yeah. Circulated this this belief that uh, a maiden waiting had dashed in with the baby in the warming pan, shoved it in the bed, zipped it out of the warming pan, taken a girl baby, if girl baby there was, uh, and away. And that incredibly unlikely story just absolutely gained hold. And so much so that today, you having researched it, honestly think that there's you know that there aren't people there to see the baby the poor james i mean it's unlike me to say poor james for a king but poor james <laughs> felt obliged to call uh, a government inquiry and they all gave evidence as to who had been there and what anybody yeah. had seen and that's why we know that the bedclothes were folded up to her knees and who was there because they all had to say what they saw and what they saw was a baby being born in a perfectly normal way and also to give an idea of just how long it rumbled on the centuries, I didn't know until the most recent book I worked on the Queen Mother that the last time the royals had to give birth with a witness was Princess Margaret in 1930. The Home Secretary, yeah, the Home Secretary was sent up on the overnight train to Glam's Castle and had to wait outside while the then Duchess of York, the future Queen Mother, gave birth to Princess Margaret. Um, so he um, actually waited outside. They weren't all in the room. But, but the doors had to be open. Yeah, that, that was Queen Victoria yeah. finally said, I think, by the way, we these princesses need them to wait outside. Oh. But yeah, no, the door was open. He could hear, you know, you sort of imagine, like the Queen Mother only died in 2002. But yeah, the consequence of the warming pan baby was there always had to be witnesses at royal births until the late Queen's father cancelled it. And I think mm. I think Princess Alexandra Philip was the, was the first one born without it. So yes, yeah, extraordinary. You know, yeah. look at the power of the election deniers. That you know, I mean, you know, a completely untrue statement that has echoed all the way through our politics for the last you know couple of years, despite all proof to the contrary. It's just amazing to me. It, it isn't, except it it absolutely confirms the belief that you know a lie is halfway around the world before truth gets its boots on. If you say something that's not true loud enough and often enough, exactly. apparently, you know, you get away with it. Even in this day and age, even with this amount of scrutiny, it is really extraordinary. Well, because I think the more, I mean, also, I want to give away, there's a brilliant plot twist with the way you dramatised the, the warming pan baby scandal. I don't want to give that away. But there are, there are little touches even of humour in these dark moments. There's a bit where... where Livia is so intent on seeing the birth that you, she like smacks the midwife's hand out of the way. And I thought there were really lovely moments of humor peppered through this. Was is that do you think there's a moment of even in very difficult times there is humor. It's like people laughing at funerals sometimes I think. I thought that was oh, brilliant. Um, I took a decision quite a few books ago that my historical fiction was not going to fall into the trap of previous historical fiction. I'm thinking of the books that were written around about the 1950s, which mm. I read when I was a girl, yeah. and which, when I came to historical fiction was very much how it was done. And there's two things that I really dislike about them. One is they're incredibly snobby. So they're yes. very, yep. very differential towards monarchy and the queens are always pure and lovely and always in a good mood and speak beautifully. And, um, you know, gentlemen are always gentlemen. Yep. Um, and it completely denies the uh, naturalness of life at whatever level of class you are. And it completely denies the horror of exploitation of the wealthy, of the poor, which uh, by actually saying these people are born 
to monarchy and it's right that they should be there and they're absolutely lovely completely denies any claim for rebellion so i said i'm not going to write snobby historical fiction and i said also i'm not going to write uh respectful historical fiction in that funny things don't happen because funny things happen in every walk of life at all the time and I think one of the reasons that you get one of the ways to get a sort of realism in historical fiction is to show the awkward silly moments where things go wrong um one of my favorite characters in the novel which doesn't appear very much is a real character Catherine Sedley who is James II's mistress and she was notorious for her misbehavior and her loudness and her vulgarity and I just loved writing her you know she's because yeah. she's so fun because she's a complete reversal of what when we do these sort of historical reconstructions what we think the court is like you know it's not always dignified it's quite often bawdy and loud and people messing about and playing stupid games and in her case you know yelling people really dislike the fact that she would gamble with the king's money and shout when she won <laughs> <laughs> you know that, that that sounds to me like a real character in a way yep. that some of the uh more old-fashioned historical fictions uh give you a, really a set of stereotypes well yeah absolutely and I think there's a great quote about the historical James II I don't know if they were talking about Catherine Sedley but they might have been which is that, first of all, James II's mistresses never get any attention compared to Charles II's from our writers. But, but someone said, some court wit said that his mistresses were all so ugly or so annoying that they thought his confessor had assigned them to James as penance. Um, That's <laughs> Charles it's... II. That's his brother. The king said that. Did he say <laughs> <laughs> wow that's that's horrible that's harsh it's, it's really harsh it's really harsh especially when you think that Charles II the older brother famously yeah. glamorous and handsome had this succession of extraordinarily yeah. beautiful and sexy mistresses some of whom went to bed together for his amusement I mean yeah. James must just have like felt he must have had such younger brother syndrome it just must oh. have been crippling well, I think he does emerge as a very disgruntled younger son, younger brother. And there is a sense, I suppose, with James to sort of link back to that generational trauma. There is a sense that, you know, of all the royal children during the Civil War, he was the one who had was really kind of the last one they got out of the Civil War safely. And he saw a lot of his father's imprisonment. There was a real sense here as, as elsewhere that he is trying to actually refight the Civil War. He's almost trying to settle something that he's been dealing with since childhood. And it is, I, I, I didn't, I thought the, 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 the James that we have in this book is very awkward. He's a very awkward man. He does, cold, I think. I find him very close to what we we think of the we know of the James the second how did you research James when you were kind when you were prepared because he's I suppose he's everywhere in the book really in a sense because it's him that is the focus of a lot of people's ire yes I mean I think when when you're writing in a period of tyrannical monarchy you can't get away from the royal family because they run the show and I expect as my books come 
past the Glorious Revolution, past 1688, through to uh, more constitutional monarchs, that the actual personality of the monarch will matter less because they have less impact on political life. You know, that's when you start getting yeah. into well, what does the prime minister think and what, what mood is parliament in and what are the people, you know, what does the electorate think that starts to become more important? I mean, I researched James very directly from biographies um, mm. and everybody was very clear that, I mean, he's so much older than Mary of Medina. He comes yeah. to the throne so much later. He's had such a terribly traumatic childhood. His father, Charles I, calls him to him on the eve of Charles I's execution and says, if they try and crown you, you must refuse it because they'll try and crown you and then you will have disinherited your older brother and you must never do that. And I'm going to die tomorrow. And, and you know, the biographers say that Charles wept over them and you go like, how incredibly self-indulgent you yeah. know, if you know you're going to be executed the next day, to have your James and uh, Elizabeth come to you and have a nice cry. I mean, yeah. Stuarts, I just think the Stuarts are despicable, but <laughs> that's me. <laughs> um, but certainly, you know, a traumatised boy. He gets out of England very courageously, but also very luckily. They disguise him as a girl and bundle him out of England and he gets away. Um, and then he has this completely wasted life as does Charles II, when they really think they're never going to get back because they think the Cromwellian settlement is going to be permanent. And um, they kind of, they're always raising money for an invasion. They never quite get enough money for an invasion. They never think it's quite going to happen. And they're just very, very lucky that Oliver Cromwell dies without getting an adequate settlement of the kingdom onto his son, which was by then his intention. And uh, you know, they Charles II is invited back and he comes with almost no conditions. He just just like dashes in. Yeah. Um, it's it's you sometimes you don't realize just how um touch and go the restoration was. I mean, it really was an extraordinary thing that he pulled it off in the way that he did. Yes, and I don't think he pulled it off very much. I think basically what you see there, though it's very concealed, is the fact that power is really shifting to the yeah. lords and it's um monk and uh, the, the, the Cromwell's generals who go like, we can't maintain a non-monarchy settlement. We'd better get Charles back and we'll, we'll, give it, we'll tell him the rules. And Charles goes, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. How, much, how, much how much will you pay me? And that's when you start the civil list, which is such a bugbear even today. Yeah, absolutely. And then pay somebody to be King of England. Yeah, and it might be Charles III that buries that from Charles II because apparently he wants to end the civil list and just fund the monarchy from the estates. So it could be we we are burying the civil list on two Charleses, uh, which could be very interesting. But one of the things that I thought um, the book also captures is a really interesting moment when you start to see, I think it's really interesting in the characters of Livia and Mary Beatrice, that you see a tension between the absolute certainties of religious faith that had gone before and a more secular pragmatism that's starting to become more apparent as we approach the Enlightenment. Mary Beatrice's faith, I think, was particularly that she's in a moment where she's almost delirious and she's talking out loud in a way you get the impression she doesn't, she's not usually that honest. Um, do you think that there's a, do you think that really it was a question of religion or politics that, that fuels the, the story forward or are they impossible to separate? I, do, I think it's ahistorical to separate them. I think yeah. until until the Enlightenment, until you have a more secular society, you can't separate religion from politics really at all. Mary Beatrice, 
didn't want to, not only did she not want to marry James like nobody would have wanted to marry James <laughs> nobody did want to marry James no. he, actually, he actually offered round a bit before they settled on Mary Beatrice because she wasn't she a very high-ranking princess she wouldn't be the first one you would go for it no wasn't the first one he went for uh she she wanted to be a nun she actually yeah. would actually committed herself towards the life of the convent and she was only persuaded to marry James by the Pope himself who wrote to her personally and said to her that it was her mission to go to England and convert the heathens of England from Protestantism back to Catholicism. So she starts off at a terrific disadvantage. Not only is she young, not only is she a second wife, she's the same age as James's daughters. So, yeah. she's, you know, she has no internal heft or political power, but she's also sent on a mission which nobody could have achieved. You know, no, it, absolutely it, not. it was wicked to think that a, a young woman could even attempt that. And um, I mean, I think as so far as it's, is it political? It is terribly political. It's toxic because by then the English have decided that it is the intention of the French to get the English return to Catholicism and ultimately take over. And James and Charles, of course, lived in the pockets of the French court on mm. the French money for all of the period of exile and carried on all the courtiers took a salary from the French king who absolutely saw the future of expanding, you know, expanding Catholicism into England and ultimately expanding French influence into England. So it's a time when you can't really separate uh, religion and politics anyway and I don't think anybody would I think there's a sense of I think there is a sense that um, Catholicism leads you sort of automatically to a sort of tyranny because of the idea of the great chain of being whereby yep. kings are appointed by God and they are second only to angels and far above mortal men and once you buy into that idea of a hierarchy of a spiritual power then you've really lost all hopes of any sort of democracy of, of civil power. Well, before I open it up to, to, to wider questions, we've talked a little bit about um, your career writing so many novels. I just, I just wanted to throw in my uh, two pence, which is that a few years ago, I wrote a biography of Catherine Howard, which we very kindly gave a, a quote for. But your portrayal of her in the... Yeah, I did Young and Damned and Fair a few years ago. Um, oh, Trish that such a good biography yes oh thank you that's very kind that was interesting. I'm sorry I didn't I didn't associate you with that it was indeed a long time ago but yeah so, and such an interesting character Catherine Howard well well first of all thank you very much I really appreciate that and also I wanted to say your portrayal of her in the Boleyn inheritance is my personal favorite fictional portrayal of Catherine of all the the queens that you've written about is there one that you particularly enjoyed writing and researching and left with reluctance because it's always painful for writers sometimes when you have to move on if you love the character I don't think I ever don't love the characters what's really interesting to me is even when I start with reservations once you dig into somebody and come to know them you can't help but love them I mean I think Catherine Howard's a wonderful example that when I started researching her I was probably thinking of her rather in the terms of David Starkey who you know, dares to call her a slut, a stupid slut. And you just go like, what do you know about anything that you would call a young woman who died at what, 16, 17? You yeah, know, probably. Uh, that, yeah, between 17 you know, and 19 is the upper yeah, limit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's, there's no understanding of nature there, I think, at all. Um, 
and so I started off with Catherine Howard going like I'm not sure I'm not sure what there is to find out about you and then of course you find out there's this incredibly complex and abused childhood and um I mean, and the abuse which literally goes into her marriage where she's married to someone who is a known wife killer. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's yeah. the most extraordinary thing that could happen to a young woman. So I think all of them, um, I never, I, I sometimes start with more or less enthusiasm. Catherine of Aragon, I started with enormous enthusiasm because I knew she was an incredibly heroic character and all I learned about her just increased my admiration of her. Catherine Parr, absolutely unsung heroine of mm. feminism and English literature. The first woman to publish in England under her own name. And almost nobody knows that. I can't no. understand why she's not, you know, why there isn't a statue for her in front of the British Library. I mean, just an extraordinary. Yeah. Um, you know, there isn't one of them, you know, Anne of Cleves that, um, you know, that we always remember what Henry said about her. So we remember what the wife abuser said about her. Yeah but we don't know what she said about him. Um, you know, who survived him and was ended up at the coronation of her stepdaughter. You know, it's such a triumph. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they're all, because they're all complex women, when you start to look into them past the stereotypes, you can't help but love them because they are complex and interesting and all of them extraordinarily courageous just to survive. Absolutely. Well, Donlands is an absolutely fantastic book. I'm sure people, I just loved it. It was just such a pleasure to have this conversation, but um, I think I have to open. Oh, no, thank you. I think I have to open up to, to, to questions now. We're going to bring Patrick back to do that, but yeah. I wanted to ask Philippa to speak a little bit about Eleanor. We've been talking about, you know, the, the royal family, but I love Tidelands. I thought it was an extraordinary book, and she is a wonderful character, um, and we meet her when she's, you know, so young in difficult circumstances, and her choices are really what drive, you know, drive this theory forward to uh, Tidelands and now this book. So could you speak a little bit about Eleanor? Because, you know, she's a character that is connecting these books and presumably if you're doing a generational saga you know she'll continue or she'll die and her progeny will continue uh, yes absolutely her progeny will continue she she does start she is in Tidelands as the sort of matriarch of the family she is the founder of the story and uh, we first meet her and she's a very poor midwife in a very poor remote area of the uh, British Isles she's on the south coast of Sussex which then is quite desolate, quite poor. And um, her mistakes and her decisions and her choices mean that at the end of Tideland, she's exiled from her community. And we next meet her uh, in dark tides when she's uh, managed to get to this warehouse on the side of the Thames and her daughter and she are running a, a little wharf, uh, coastal trade. And Livia comes into their life and uh, in a sense expands the possibility of the wolf and the wealth in general. And then when we get to um, Dawnlands, Eleanor is now an old lady in, in that period, really very old. Uh, and we find, I mean, I think what's very heartwarming for me is that although it's taken me three books, there's a bit of a resolution for her that uh, she ends up uh, almost as the lady of the house where she had been a very despised servant. And uh, she ends up resolving the question of uh, the unhappy love affair that she had in book one in a way which I think really reflects her dignity and her growth and uh, the failure of the man to step up at the right time to love her. 
Did you read, or do you probably did, because it was such a hit, such a pot boiler, Forever Amber, umpteen years ago. But do you, if you did, you would remember, remember. that there was a I bit of remember. a similarity there in that um, there was a, a man like that and a young woman somewhat like that. And all the way through, um, he never steps up, you know, in, in a way. And it's, I, I think even though it was a tremendous pot boiler and, you know, not, a, not really a scholarly work in any way, I thought that it did a terrific job in illustrating what you were just talking about um, and I, how I hard it was to survive as a woman, you know, to, to make choices and survive them. I think the man who doesn't step up is probably as much of a fictional trope and possibly in real life as yeah. the Italian widow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Patrick, that's your cue. Step up, step out, step up. It was perfect. <laughs> okay. Um, well, what a fascinating conversation. Um, there have been a lot of comments that are just people expressing how much they admire your work. And um, one question that's come in, though, a gentleman named Ian would like to know, are there any plans to return to the Order of Darkness series? Do you know, it's so interesting. More people have asked me about the Order of Darkness series on this book tour than I've heard from in years. I don't know why everybody wants the final book. It, I am remiss. I, uh, to Ian and everyone else, I hold up my hands here. Uh, I, it, I planned it as a four book series and I have written and published three and my characters are currently hanging in limbo and they're on their way actually to um, Transylvania. <laughs> but, uh, but I haven't set them off yet. And I have promised myself and I promised my readers that I will get to book four and I will conclude that series uh, next year. Um, another question's come in about, um, you know, adaptations of your work for the screen, the big screen or the, or the television screen. Um, any, any news on that front? Uh, there's a few possibilities. There's certainly a possibility of the Fairmile series uh, going into a television series, uh, which would be, I mean, which would be really great. I'm, I'm very careful now. Uh, who I partner with, uh, because I don't really want any alterations to the history. I don't mind people adding their spin on the fiction, but it's very painful to me when I have to defend the historical content uh, in an adaptation. So that's a possibility. And uh, there's a, an American production company who are interested in Wideacre after all these years. Um, so there's a couple of possibilities happening now, and uh, I'll, I'll let you all know how it goes. We have uh, one question about your uh, about your children's books. Um, any, uh, any future plans to write another one? Um, the children's books is something that are on a bit of the back burner. I've, I've just completed a series um, uh, based on the princess rules stories, and they've been very, very popular, and they were a joy to write. They're absolutely lovely to write, and I have grandsons now, and they want another one. So I imagine I will have to write another one, but right now I'm very, very absorbed in writing a non-fiction, a history book of the women of England, and that's taking up absolutely all of my time for the rest of this year and half of the next. So some of these things have got to be parked, unfortunately. Right. When you say a history of women, can you be a little more specific, Philippa? 
Uh, I can be terrifyingly specific. We oh, start in we start in 1066 <laughs> with the invasion with the Norman invasion, and uh, I'm going to go through to 1992, which is the year that women are ordained for the first time in the Church of England, which is to accept for the first time that women have souls and can communicate directly with God and can, in a sense, pass the Spirit of God through them. And you think it takes us nine centuries for men to regard women as spiritual beings. It's extraordinary. So it's not going to be, uh, there's a lot of books which do uh, lists of great women. It's not going to be a list at all. It's going to be a discussion of uh, the centuries and how what women's rights advance in the centuries, what goes wrong for women in the centuries and how these various sort of myths about women's nature develops over time fascinating to uh, research but as I say immensely time consuming. Do you have help doing research or is it all you? I have no help. Nobody. Researchers helping? No I wish I had a team of researchers. The thing is is that so often with research for me I find I know I want to know about something in a general area and it's only when I've read three or four books that I find the thing that I'm interested in. Um, so what I can't do is I can't say I can't yeah. say to a researcher go and have a look and if you find something that would interest me let me know you know they're never going to do that. So for right. instance the the other Bolin girl I was uh, going to write a book about a female pirate and so I was looking about a history of the Royal Navy and I came across Henry VIII uh, launching a ship which was called Mary Boleyn and I went I've never heard of Mary Boleyn who's Mary Boleyn and if I had given that task to a researcher I would have had a lovely file about women pirates and the Royal Navy and I would never have heard of Mary Boleyn. So it's yeah. often the little detail tucked away waiting to be discovered it'll take you down a, a I would rabbit say hole. It's always a little detail tucked away that takes you off. And uh, I always notice when I'm researching, when I go, oh, that's interesting, but it's not what I'm working on. I now know to always make a note of that because that's the thing that's going to stick in my mind and that I'm going to want to check up on later. It's extraordinary. Is that Gareth, just find that to be true as well? The research, yeah, yeah absolutely. Research. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I knew exactly what Philippa meant when she said it just wouldn't work. On the one hand, you would love the researchers, but actually, even with, I think it would be the same with nonfiction and fiction. Because I mean, you'll know this better than I will, Philippa. But sometimes you will find little things that you think, oh goodness, that it leads you down a rabbit hole. For instance, with um, the Catherine Howard book, I was able to put that I did a few years ago, I was able to put in a lot about etiquette manuals, because when I was researching, I came across a casual mention that there were still su surviving some textbooks they used to use to teach aristocratic children how to behave. But that wouldn't technically have flagged up for a researcher of what I'd asked for. So in many ways, it's like you're sort of like a breadcrumb trail, really, of trying to find what will interest you. Absolutely. It's organized chaos is the best. I mean, not even organized chaos. I think there's no. a, it's, it's almost dawn of the world chaos. You know, you want a yeah. sort of primordial soup and you'll see what crawls out, you know, and you have yeah. to. I think the more experienced I get in research and writing, the bolder I get about going like, well, I don't need to decide yet where this story is mm. going to go or where this research is going to go. I'll just, you know, noodle around and see what see what takes my fancy. You know, as a reader, it's interesting. I love the other Berlin girl. Um, and I think, you know, it's a fascinating story. But the character that I really want to follow from that is Henry Lord Hunston, because I think he is an extraordinary figure. And yet we hardly know anything about him. And think of the irony. If, if 
Mary Boleyn, Anne Boleyn's older sister, actually had a healthy son from Henry VIII, uh, but he was never able to, you know, to inherit. Uh, it, it's even more ironic than that. Someone wrote to me that the heraldry on his tomb in Westminster Abbey is that of a royal bastard. So when Elizabeth was on the throne and he knew that he as a he was a royal bastard, uh, so he didn't have a claim greater than her, but he was male. Uh, right. He never ever mentioned it. Nobody ever mentioned it. But it was the sort of thing nobody spoke about because she notoriously arrested and executed uh, rival claimants. So only on his tomb, when he was safely dead of natural causes, did he put anything like a claim up. That fascinating. That would be a good book title: The Royal ba Bastard. Too many of them. <laughs> you'd, you'd have to have a subtitle to like narrow it yeah the duke of monmouth would have been so much better a king than you know than james i mean the stewards the stewards were cursed by bad luck and bad judgment and at the end of their lives by sterility they got rid of the you know the warming pan baby through this disinformation category but william and mary didn't have children and poor anne had some kind of ghastly she and her husband, probably yeah. some sort of, you know, blood disorder thing. Would she have 18 children, all of whom died? Yeah. Which is why we, you know, eventually got the Hanoverians going all the way back to Sophie and um, Charles the sec Charles the first sister. But, um, you know, I, I, they were just a cursed family, all the way from Mary, Queen of Scots, it seems to be going forward. What if her husband- they, they, invited, they invited a lot of the Carson themselves. They did. <laughs> they did. <laughs> you know, they no, were- to, full... be to be fair, when she married the heir to the French throne, she couldn't anticipate that he would die. And, you know, think how history would have been different if he hadn't, yeah, she was um, the Queen of France. Yeah. Um, you know, history is so full of accidents. That's what's so, you know, completely fascinating. Part of it's bad choices, but a lot of it is just stuff that happens to you. And, and, Absolutely. and one of the tricks of writing historical fiction is acknowledging the sort of serendipity of the events at the same time, you know, if you're writing fiction, you can't just go, this happens, then damn it, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> Lord, that's just happened. You know, you have to like find a thread through, but that's actually probably not what history is like when you're living it at the time. No. It feels completely random. It does. I think resilience, you know, has so much to do with, with what happens, you know, who is resilient and who isn't, who catches luck, but you can't, it doesn't do you any good to catch a break if you're not resilient. You know, Charles II, the Merry Monarch, but in many ways, you know, a terrible king because he didn't actually do the things that he should have done. So, you know, there's a lot of myth in history too, a lot of myth um, that, that survives. So I think your books are marvelous, Philippa, and I'd really um, encourage any of you who are watching this to read the Fair Mile Trilogy from the beginning, to read Tidelands, which is wonderful, and um, I'm sorry, what's the second one? The Dark Tides, and then, and then Dawnlands. I mean, you can read Dawnlands as it is, as it stands, but I think it'll be a richer experience if you actually read all three. Um, and we do, as I pointed out, have, I have to do a book selling moment here, we do have signed book plates, uh, which are wonderful. And um, thank you very much. What a pleasure it is to have hosted both of you, new to us, but we hope not for the last time we'll get a chance to talk. So thank you for joining us. I know, Philippa, you have another engagement, so I think we'll sign off and let you catch your breath, right? Thank you so much. It's very kind of you. And it's a pleasure to, to meet you all. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you very much. Very thank much. you. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. 
please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.